the guy made me grab a shovel and he told me to walk. I had no idea where we were going. I had no idea how to communicate with him. The limited Russian that I had was insufficient. All I knew was he said to walk and he pointed me in a direction. So I started walking. I'm walking with the shovel and, and he has his own shovel and he's just quiet the whole time and, and I don't know what's going to go on. I'm thinking, did I do something to this guy to anger him? Did I, did I make him mad? The way that this is turning out to be, it seems like I'm in some sort of horror movie where I'm about to dig my own grave. Well, we walked for two and a half hours. We passed through a stream, a frozen, freezing stream. We passed through woods, fields, and finally we came, came across this field. It looked like an empty field cleared out in the middle of the forest. We were miles from anything, miles from anyone. If I yelled, no one would be able to hear me. And he looks at me, and in his broken English, he tells me to dig. So I dug. Eventually, I came across some potatoes, and I realized we were just there digging up potatoes. In 2003, we moved to Russia together, and it changed us in a permanent way. We learned to survive the snow, to drink vodka, and to beat ourselves in the bathhouse. We discovered a land of poets and philosophers, of ancient mysteries and modern transformations. It was an entirely different world. Ever since we left, we've wanted to share this great country with others. Consider this podcast our love letter to Russia. I'm David. And I'm Grant. Welcome to Season 2 of To Russia With Love. Yeah, so that was that was one of my experiences out in Siberia. We, I was there um, a year after we were living in Russia, and that was one of my experiences. We were at a camp, and one of the guys from the camp gave me a shovel and said, let's go out into the forest. And we went and hiked for literally two and a half hours. It might have been more. I was so incredibly tired. And then we dug up um, a couple buckets full of potatoes and brought it back. And I found out later that this guy had planted this potato field in the middle of nowhere so that way people wouldn't come and steal his potatoes. <laughs> That's a great way to avoid potato theft. Yeah. You can just put it in the middle of the woods and make some guy think he's going to dig his own grave. <laughs> yeah, that is that that would be a scary story anywhere, you know, when you don't speak the language really and but especially man Siberia that the word for me it's synonymous with with remote yeah. just vast enormous remote and siberia that's what we're going to be talking about today uh we're going to hear a lot about grant's trip to siberia uh we're going to look at a lot of other fun background information about siberia the culture history but we're going to hear i want to hear from you grant uh, a couple episodes ago I told my stories about my trip to Ethiopia last year, talking mm -hmm. about the similarities between Ethiopia and Russia. Yeah. And now we're going to be hearing from Grant uh, from his trip to Siberia. And I really, I've heard you talk a little bit about this. I really want to hear more about it because Siberia fascinates me. It's a place, I've never been there. 
Never been to the eastern part of Russia, but I would love to go there someday. Yeah. The natural beauty, the wildness of it, the the remoteness, uh, especially also because of Tunguska, that Tunguska explosion that destroyed thousands of, of miles of forest, that ball of light that exploded in the sky. Yeah. That some people like to say it was a UFO. Aliens, written, man. Aliens. Uh, <laughs> because aliens. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I've I've written a novel about that, which we're gonna release soon in English. Uh, I'm fascinated with with Tunguska. There's lots of other strange, mysterious stuff in Siberia, and so, so I really want to hear about it because I I want to go there someday. That's on my bucket list. Yeah, it was it was a it was a beautiful part of the country. It definitely subverted my expectations, and it it was it was cool. It was different than our experience. Of what we had living in the Angles and Saratov area, I highly recommend it. Yeah, definitely. You got you to gotta get out there sometime, Dave. We're going to look at a lot of uh, background um, about Siberia. But first, could, could you tell us real briefly, uh, what were you doing there? How did you end up going there? I know it was a church trip, but why, why Siberia? And yeah, yeah, give us the basics of your trip. Yeah, well, if all of you have been listening to our podcast, you know that Dave and I went out and lived in Russia as missionaries. And we went through a church in California. After I returned to the States, I stayed involved with that church, started working with the youth program there. And an opportunity came up with a, a different missionary who was living in Siberia for a long period of time, a long-term missionary out there. And um, he invited us to bring out a team and help him do some camps out there. So a similar situation to the first time that we went out to Russia. Um, but in this case, since I had lived in Russia, I was asked to lead the team. So I led a group of uh, young people, college and uh, high school age with a couple of parents. And we did, uh, we did camp in Siberia. We flew out to Ulan Ude. And um, from there, we drove okay. forever. And uh, finally made it to this camp and hosted a camp for some of the local people. Now, why why Siberia? Why why that place out of all of the country? Yeah, you know, I think I think really just because of the connection that we had with this other missionary. Um, there's a, a missionary named Doug. He married a, a Russian woman named Margarita, and they were they were living out there, and that's where they were doing their ministry. That's where they were doing their ministry, and um, so it just kind of was an opportunity for us to be out there. You don't hear the name Margarita in Russia that much in modern days. No, you don't. And it was, and we always laughed whenever he said it. He was this American. We've talked about learning the language and how difficult it is. One of the things that's very difficult is pronunciation. And uh, this missionary learns. He he knew he knew how to speak anywhere, but he had the most American accent ever <laughs> and uh and so we laughed every time he would say like this is my wife margarita and um <laughs> and we just thought it was so funny probably one of the reasons why i didn't learn the language as well as you dave was because i was so afraid to pronounce things wrong i think i focused more on my pronunciation than i actually learning words and to your credit you you got it pretty good too you the stuff that you could say you got the pronunciation pretty Pretty on point. Oh, thanks. I think I think that's some of my music background. Being a musician, yeah. I'm used to hearing something and emulating it. I always laugh when I hear Americans speak Russian. You know, it's it's, yeah, it's it can be really it's bad. It's a silly <laughs> accent. 
So was this guy even worse than? Do you remember that guy from Texas in Saratov? Yeah, I've forgotten his name, but he was he was a missionary from Texas. Super thick Texas accent. Yeah, that was funny. My my in-laws are from the south as well and they, you know, when I hear them speak Russian, I can hear a little bit of their southern accent. That was similar to the Texas guy. This guy had a totally weird I don't even know what it was kind of accent, but but we laughed especially when he talked about his wife Margarita. <laughs> Talks to Unga Varil Votakimo Brazil? Yeah. Anna Maya Jena Margarita? Exactly. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was why we that was why we were out there. Okay. I guess it's through the connection with, with the missionary. And and how long were you guys there? We were just there for like two weeks. We we flew in to Moscow, took up another airplane to Ulan Ude, drove out to the middle of nowhere and had this camp. We basically built the camp like like how you and I did. I guess that's a Russian thing. You just show up and you start building things. Yeah, like we did. You build a little kitchen. We we dug a a uh, cellar and started putting vegetables in this hole in the ground oh, wow. as kind of a uh, little refrigerator or a way to keep the food better <laughs> throughout the week. I think we did that in in angles too at our camp. I yeah, think we dug a cellar. Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird that uh, different than what you know, we do here when we go camping or when we do camps. Yeah, I guess we had both experiences because we had the English camp we worked with. They would use an old pioneer facility. Yeah. From the, the um, uh, Komsomol, rather. Yeah. Oh, I forget. Pioneer or Komsomol. Uh, but it was a f- actual facilities with barracks and uh, dormitories and kitchen. And banyas. And everything. So, And, ba- oh, yeah, it had a banya and everything. Yeah. Yeah, it would it had a swimming pool. It was really nice. Yeah. Yeah, so we had we had that experience with the English camp, but then we had the church camp where we just carved it out of the wilderness. Yeah, the church camps in my uh experience were the low budget camps. <laughs> yeah, cuz the English camp they they had some money from the the parents so so they could rent that that space. Yeah. So I want to hear a lot more about your trip there and your your adventures digging your own grave in the wilderness. <laughs> But I want to let's do a little background information and and look at the big picture of Siberia. Yeah. Uh this just just ridiculously enormous vast place. So Siberia <clears throat> it became part of Russia in the 1600s. It's extremely rich in minerals, oil and gas. Uh and when you look at the numbers it's just staggering. Yeah. It uh you know Russia size-wise Russia's the biggest country on earth. Siberia makes up 77% of Russia's land area. Despite that, it only has 36 million people. It's a quarter of Russia's population. Wow. Living in 77% of the land. 13 million square kilometers. If you cut off the western part of Russia, which I always heard the official division is the Ural Mountains yeah. uh, between Europe, Europe and Asia, if you cut off the European part of Russia and just kept Siberia, it would still be the world's largest country. Man, just looking at globes, you know, people, you can take a look at a globe and, and see that yourself. It's ridiculous how long Russia is and most of it's Siberia. Yeah, so the it's uh, obviously not very densely populated, the same as Australia, actually, which has a lot of outback and wilderness. The northern coast of Siberia is north of the Arctic Circle. So there's that little strip of it that is Arctic, and the summer's only one month long up there. And that's where you've got the permafrost and you've got 
you know, what a lot of people think of when they think of Siberia as like frozen, barren wilderness. Yeah. Which obviously it is much bigger than that. And, and it's not all barren permafrost wilderness. Well, where, where I where I was, it was hot. I mean, it was legitimately hot, which was kind of a, a mess with my mind, you know, thinking I thought we were in Siberia. I thought it was supposed to be frozen. <laughs> Yeah. So you were in summer, right? It was like, what, July, August? Yeah, we were there probably in August. can't remember exactly. I have this idea in my head that it would even be chilly or at least cool in the summertime. But you say it wasn't. It was hot there. Yeah, it was, re- it was really warm, really hot. Yeah, so it, just Siberia, within Siberia, there's so much diversity there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, climate, climate, ecology, and then there's ethnic diversity too. Yeah, absolutely. There are tons of different ethnic groups. Uh, some of the bigger ones are the Chukchi, the Evenki, the Tuvans, the Yakuti, uh, Tartars, and Mansi. Wow. There are so many ethnicities there, though, that uh, people group them into these main language groups. There's Uralic, Altaic, Yeniseian, and Paleo-Siberian, which is kind of the catch-all for all the other peoples. Yeah. But there are a lot of ethnic Siberians who've risen to power in Russia the Minister of Defense of Russia, Sergei Shoigu, is of Tuvan descent. And uh, the mayor of Moscow, Sergei uh, Sabianinis, he's a part of the Mansi people. Hmm. The Mansi people, you, you talked about the Tunguska, like those, those were the people who were around that type of that event, right? That was actually the people, those were the people near uh, the Dyatlov Pass. Dyatlov, that's The, right. the yeah. hikers who got, who disappeared. Uh, yeah, they, the Mansi people were native there. Um, okay. Tunguska was further east. Yeah. And so in Tunguska, the natives were mostly Evenki, would okay. be the people closest to there. Hmm. And I think I think Tunguska is an Evenk, Evenk word, if I'm not mistaken. Well, th- that just shows like the, you, when, when people think of Siberia, they think of one thing, but there's so many different things. The people that I met were, they, they were called the Buryats. Okay, yeah. Do those fall into any of those ethnic groups? I think they are related to the Evenki people. Okay. I think Buryati and Evenki are, uh, I think the languages might be similar because a lot of the traditions overlap with each other. Now, Mm. one of the traditions that that really draws me in that I would would love to go to Siberia and just spend a month studying this is the shamanism tradition there. Oh, yeah. There's this ancient shaman tradition, and the word shaman actually comes from the Evenk language. Hmm. It's an, an Evenk word. And now, of course, people all over the world use that word. Yeah. But these ancient ancient pagan traditions, traditions of the wise, shaman of the tribe, uh, the Buryati and the Evenki, they have a lot of those similar traditions. Yeah. And there's actually, there's an island in Lake Baikal. It's called uh, Aljuan, and it's a sacred island for the Buryati. Because you were close to the Lake Baikal, right? I actually swam there. We we didn't have the camp yeah. right at the lake, but um, after we finished camp, we went and stayed for like two or three nights at Lake Baikal. So we were right, right there. We swam. We were we were on the beach. Nice. Now, was the water really cold, or was it did it warm up in the summer? Oh my goodness, it was the coldest water that I've ever been in. <laughs> and I've been in some. Oh, yeah. I've been in some cold water when I was in Sweden. I jumped in the water in April and. And that was cold. And then uh, Lake Tahoe, where I live now, that's notoriously cold. But Lake Baikal just blew both of those out of the water. It was 
it was almost painfully cold. <laughs> and this is in like in the middle middle of the summer. Yeah, you know what? That I would I'm imagining it's similar to Donner Lake in Nevada near Donner Pass, where mm-hmm. the famous Donner Party and yeah, and all the fun cannibal cannibalism stuff happened. <laughs> and I was there in the summer a few years ago. And uh, and the same as you're describing it. Outside in the air, it was really hot, just sweating the whole time. But man, I went in the water. I'm assuming because it's the melted snow that goes in there. It just it hurt. You just <laughs> you feel your junk crawl up inside of you, and it, it's just painful to swim in. Yeah, yeah. We were we were my family was there just a few weeks ago, and yeah, that that was a cold another cold one too. And yeah, it was very similar. the The only difference is Lake Baikal was just huge compared. To that lake or compared to even lake tahoe it's huge it's one of the biggest lakes in the world it actually it is it's the it has it holds the most water of uh, fresh water in the world doesn't it i think it is the yeah the i think biggest. 22 20 22 to 23% of the world's fresh water is in lake baikal wow so that's it's got more water than all of the great lakes combined in north america it's also the world's deepest lake that we know of, it has more than 1,000 species of plants, 2,500 species of animals, but the actual number for that could be a lot higher because, of course, you know, how do you count the animals that yeah. haven't been discovered yet? There was a, there's a freshwater seal. I think it's the only freshwater seal in the world that is in Lake Baikal. And we saw, we saw I didn't even, I didn't know that existed. Yeah. I think it's the only one ever. Um, and and we uh, we we didn't we didn't see any in person. I don't know where they hang out, but they weren't at the beach to where we were at. But uh, we did see one that was stuffed, and it looked so funny. It <laughs> it was big and fat, and I don't know. I don't think it was just a bad taxidermy job, because I've seen pictures of them later, and they just look fat and weird. <laughs> They're very round. <laughs> that reminds me of. Uh... I got to see the the world's only freshwater dolphin in Peru, South mm. America. Oh. In the rivers there, I was on the river Ucayali, and we saw some of them going past and jumping out of the water. And like you're saying, it it looks like just a goofy-looking dolphin. Yeah. It looks like a, like a little kid tried to do, draw a dolphin and couldn't do it well. It's yeah. just all weirdly proportioned. I see stickers around here. I live in Reno, Nevada, which is right next to Lake Tahoe. Right. And you see stickers everywhere on people's cars, in windows that say, keep Tahoe blue. Last summer when we were driving around, Lindsay and I all of a sudden saw some that were in Russian. And we thought, what? Why, why is that? And we did a little bit of digging into that. And there's a, um, a Tahoe Baikal Institute. I guess it's a, a group that was established to preserve Lake Tahoe in California and Nevada and Lake Baikal here, there in Siberia, as well as other significant nice. and threatened lake ecosystems. But I thought that was really cool. And and one of the things I think that's about that is both Tahoe and Baikal are like extremely fresh, clean water. And I think a part of that in Baikal is that it's so far removed from most civilization. You know, it doesn't get a lot of the pollution that a lot of other lakes get. But I that that was really interesting. Sure. I should send you a bumper sticker. Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll put it on put it on my car. Yeah, that's. Uh, I would imagine it's also the the snow water coming in fresh every year that uh, probably keeps yeah uh, you know new fresh water coming in. You know, neither, obviously, neither of us are. I don't even know what the profession's called. Lake masters, ecology <laughs> guys, water that's dudes. Not our area of expertise. 
but we love nature and we love preserving it. Um, and I'd, I'd love to see Lake Baikal. Uh, just the idea of something that deep, it's the, I guess the deepest point is 1,642 meters down. Wow. That is, in, that's all, that's insane. That's more than a mile down in a freshwater lake. Uh. And so the, the idea of something that huge, it's like anything could live there. Yeah. And ever since I was a kid, I always loved stuff like the Loch Ness Monster and thinking about unknown animals, cryptids that we haven't discovered yet. Mm-hmm. So I like to imagine that there's some sea monsters in Lake Baikal. Yeah, me too. Except when I'm swimming there. Don't remind me of that then. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think about sea monsters when I swim in a swimming pool, though. <laughs> I'm always afraid of sea monsters. Yeah. Yeah, so the name of Lake Baikal, it's a native word also, like talking about these native cultures. And actually the music that we're listening to right now, uh, this is traditional throat singing, which some listeners may have heard of. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a very unique style of singing that comes from Siberia. A lot of the native cultures, the Tuvans and many other cultures have this tradition of of throat singing. Uh, Really unique way of, of singing we uh, toyed with the idea of trying to record our own throat singing, but we quickly decided it would just be really offensive and sound terrible because we, we're not from Siberia and we don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, and so one, just... one of the techniques with, with this is polyphonic singing. So basically, the really good throat singers in the world, in Siberia and Mongolia, they sing two pitches at the same time. No way. And it's, it's biz- bizarre, and it's almost... It's almost impossible for Westerners to sing it unless they study it and practice it for a long time, which we haven't done, so we're not even going to give it a try. <laughs> That's in- I didn't even know that. So they're, you're doing two notes at the same time in one person's throat. Yeah, many of them are. Oh, that is so cool. Man, I love, I love this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so much cultural traditions um, and religious diversity, too, in Siberia. Yeah. There are tons of different religions there. Obviously, Orthodox Christianity from the 1600s when it became part of Russia. Other denominations of Christianity. Uh, obviously, you were there visiting a Protestant yeah. evangelical church. There's Tibetan Buddhism and Islam in parts of Siberia. In the the Siberian Federal District, which is just one district of Siberia, they have an estimated quarter million Muslims mm. living there. Yeah, and there's there's an estimate of seventy thousand Jewish people who live there. The one of the regions of Siberia was the Jewish Autonomous Region, which during in the early days of the revolution. They created these autonomous regions, and one of them was meant to be like a homeland for the Jewish-Russian people. Mm. Uh, didn't catch on as much as Lenin had imagined, but but that's that's in Siberia. Uh. And of course, then there's the traditional, the shamanistic traditions and polytheism, which every culture has their own practices. Yeah. Um, just extremely, extremely ancient beliefs. I think it was a part of the shamanistic tradition of the area, but when we were driving, we ended up going over... I don't even want to call it like a peak of a mountain because it was barely a mountain. <laughs> it was kind of, there was kind of a hill that we went over, but we were at the highest elevation in the area. And um, apparently, uh, 
I think it was, I think it's in the, like I said, in the shaman, shamanistic traditions, they have a tradition that that's like a holy space or a sacred space. Okay. And, and so whenever people would cross that, that border, that, that peak of elevation, they would leave some kind of offering or sacrifice. There were, there were hundreds of flags flying around on poles. Nice. The people who would, you know, do the fast track version would just open up their car window and throw some Kopecks out the window. <laughs> like going through the, the toll booth when you just toss the change into the little. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, those weren't the real, the real believers, but the, the real believers would stop and, and give a sacrifice. It reminds me a lot of, uh, um, you mentioned Tibetan Buddhism, and that makes me think of when people climb in the Himalayas, some of the Himalayan right. traditions, and, and where you see all the flags flying at base camps and stuff like that, where, where the, uh, the indigenous people have their sacred spaces. So That's interesting. It, it's kind of a universal thing in a lot of cultures to have, have mountaintops be sacred spaces. Mountaintops yeah. and caves, yeah. a lot of times... Uh, it's um, a lot of native cultures have this concept of the universe as divided up into strata layers and, and our earthly plane is one plane and, and there's usually underworlds under ours and then a heavenly realm or realms. And yeah. so those mountaintops are the places where our world peaks into the next realm of, of the universe. Yeah. And you go up there to have this, I mean, you know, there's a, in Christianity, there's the term mountaintop experience, the yeah. same idea of going to a special sacred place. In in Mexico too, a lot of the the native cultures in Mexico have uh, traditions about each mountain being having you know certain spots where you go to pray and there are yeah. altars there. In some traditions, they people talk about uh, sort of a demigod who's in charge of each mountain or each hmm. mountain range, and it's uh, sort of a you know, supernatural figure. He's called el, el dueño del cerro or el señor del cerro, like the lord of the mountain. Hmm. And he's he's obviously an ancient pre-Christian belief of of this guardian of nature who who watches over the mountain and the resources and the water and animals and so you go up to the mountaintop to pay your respects to him. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So what fascinating place, um, Siberia actually it's so huge and and remote from Moscow and Saint Petersburg that there is even a regional autonomy movement. Um, that's existed there since at least the the mid 1800s. So it was a political movement to try to form some kind of autonomous political entity in Siberia because of how far they were from Moscow and everything. Yeah. Which uh, which that you you see that a lot a lot of times when there's a far off place that is administered by a capital that's very distant. Uh, a lot of times the residents will feel like the capital government's not connected to them, and then we'll form a an autonomous movement. So in Siberia, it's called the Sibirskaya Oblastnichstva, which comes from oblast, which is the word for the state or region in yeah. the government. Started in the 1800s, but there's a modern-day performance artist who did a piece, uh, kind of a mock demonstration using that as a, a topic. His name is uh, Artyom Loskutov. He wrote about this idea. He wrote a blog about a Siberian republic. He, he did a mock demonstration um, against the Russian authorities. But then later on, he explained that the whole purpose of it was to, he, he described it as ridiculing the Kremlin's hypocrisy in the annexation of Crimea by the Russian Federation, and also to raise the issue of Siberia's delayed development. Mm. 
And so he he talks about how Western Siberia provides a lot of Russia's oil and gas, but there's not much benefit that goes to the region providing the resources. Yeah. And uh, and you see that in countries all over the world, too. The the regions that provide natural resources a lot of times are the poorest regions and are kind of neglected by the, the country's government. Yeah. You can see that in, in, in the U.S. with uh, the Midwest, a lot of the Dakotas, a lot of the Lakota indigenous territory up there provides uranium and other resources, and it's also one of the poorest regions of the U.S. Yeah, people always say that Moscow is a different country than the rest of Russia. And I think that's true. You see a lot of money, you see a lot of wealth in Moscow, a lot of development, especially even since we've been there. I I look at the skyline, pictures of the skyline in recent years, and there's huge skyscrapers in Moscow. But where we lived in Saratov was a little bit more backwoods, wasn't as wealthy. But, But when I went out to Siberia, it was even less wealthy. I mean, most of the buildings that I remember seeing and being in were Soviet constructed buildings, you know, probably from the 80s at the latest. Some of the older ones were probably built in the 60s and 50s. You could see that there was a difference in culture and a difference in where the money goes. How did all the infrastructure look? Like those old Soviet buildings, were they, was there a lot of upkeep or were they kind of run down or what did, what did the look of things. Uh, From what I remember, they were kept up pretty well. I think I remember a a lot of like pastel colored paints everywhere. And it seems like the paint was fairly fresh. A lot of greens, a lot of pinks. Those were the, those were those, the big Soviet buildings. We went to a few villages. Most of the buildings were wood. They called them wood buildings. And Those were often painted like a darker green and some red. They reminded me a little bit of some of the dachas that we would go to in our area, but they were often bigger, more like homes. I remember we saw one place that was, I think the guy who owned it was a businessman in the area. And it was funny because there was all these wooden little houses around and there was just this one big giant house (laughs) That was kind of like a mansion. I think they told me that that it might have been um, one of the gypsy kings in the area, or one of the the leaders of the of oh, one of the tribes of gypsies around there. We didn't meet them. Interesting. Now that I want to do an episode about about the the Roma gypsy culture someday in Russia, too, yeah. Because I know your your wife Lindsay is familiar with with those people, and uh, I'm I've always been fascinated by. By, by that ethnicity, too. Yeah. I'd love to talk about them more in the future. Yeah, she had gone out and done some camps in Siberia as well. That was actually how we, we connected, because we both found out that we did camps in Siberia. You know, how many people do you know who have gone out and done a youth camp in the middle of nowhere <laughs> in Siberia? Yeah, that's a unique thing to have in common. And speaking of Siberian camps, you guys did the good kind of Siberian camps. Um, because we have, to, uh, we have to recognize something that I think a lot of people associate. Yeah. With Siberia, which is the bad kind of Siberian <laughs> camps. That's the, the prison camps. Yeah. Now that the system, we, people imagine uh, that existing only with the communist days, but it actually existed a long time before the revolution. It was a, a mm. practice of the Tsars to exile people to Siberia as punishment. Uh, it was called Katorga, this kind of punishment in the judicial judicial system of the Russian Empire. And Katorga camps were, they were established all the way back in the 17th century. 
And so they would do them in these underpopulated parts of Siberia in the Far East and places without a lot of transportation, food, towns. So it was, yeah, same the same idea as England sending their criminals to Australia, a place that you couldn't yeah. really couldn't really get out of easily. Except that Australia is the is separated by massive amounts of water. Siberia <laughs> is just massive amounts of land. <laughs> I think I think someday in the future we're going to be sending prisoners to the moon or Mars or something. Oh yeah. A lot of people talk about there's this utopian idea that we'll be colonizing Mars. I'm not super optimistic about humanity sometimes. <laughs> I think it's more likely yeah. that Mars is going to be the new Siberia for whatever government's in charge in the future. It's remote and back in the day, I mean if you were in Siberia though, yeah, there was no ocean but there were very few roads of any kind, I mean, you just had to hike across countless miles of wilderness to get, get to civilization. Yeah. Even despite that, a few prisoners managed to escape even way back when. Now, Siberia became really significant after 1847 when the, the Tsar's government made it more common for anyone who participated in a national uprising to get sent into exile. And uh, that's interesting because we're talking you know, about 60-odd years before the revolution, but they were already feeling the rumbling, oh. the rumblings of discontent of a lot of people very unhappy with how the Tsars were running things. Wow. And so a lot of uh, yeah, different people, Polish people got sent to Siberia for Katorga, and uh, so that's where Siberia starts to become synonymous with punishment and exile. Uh, then, of course, mm. you get to the revolution. A lot of the revolutionaries were sent there by the Tsarist government. That appears in, in Fiddler on the Roof, you remember that that old oh, play, yeah. and, and I love watching that the play and the movie based on it. Toward the end, Seitel's uh, husband now is being sent to Siberia because he's a revolutionary, and so he's yeah. going he's going to a prison camp, and she decides to move there and join him. And uh, I actually I always had sort of a head canon that I imagine with Fiddler that after the play ends, you know, the revolution comes into power and she and him, they be they move into some luxury apartment in Moscow because he's a great revolutionary hero. And and they have a <laughs> bunch of kids and they go to the Bolshoi theater and they're happy ever after. That's how I like to imagine. Yeah, gotta, yeah, yeah. I think that was, it was implied. There's got to be justice for Perchik out there. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of famous books were written about uh, the gulags. Obviously, Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn, first released in 1973. It was cir circulated by the underground bootleg publishing known as Samizdat until 1989 with Perestroika when things start to thaw. And then it could get a proper publication. Oh, that's punk rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So back in those those really cool days when a lot of underground music and literature would get circulated in really creative ways. Yeah. Solzhenitsyn, he also wrote A Day in the Life of Ivan Zinisevich. This is interesting. That was published openly in 1962 in the journal Novi Mir. Hmm. Novi Mir, one of these lit journals. N New World. Right. I assume that's because of the whole de-Stalinization process. Khrushchev's government was trying to, to distance itself from the repression of of Stalin, yeah. so uh, recognizing you know more for open forms of expression. Now, there's a really personal touch here for me because I probably have relatives in Siberia. Mm. This is because my family, we are Volga Germans. Uh, we've talked about this before. It's a German ethnic people who went from Germany to Russia in the 1700s, settled the Southwest, and we lived there for hundreds of years, happy and content. But then World War II starts Stalin was suspicious of anybody who might 
work against him or betray him. Especially with German heritage at that point. Oh, yeah. German last name. Forget about it. He he just saw your name was Schmidt or Zimmermann. And he said, no, this guy's going to spy on Hitler. For He's going to be spying on the Soviet Union for Hitler. And and we can't have that. So the, the same as the U.S. government did to Americans of Japanese descent. Stalin took yeah. people, Russians of German descent, and he said, I'm afraid you guys might possibly spy on me. So I'm going to make sure that never happens. And I'm not going to treat you like the Russian citizens you are. The same as yeah. the U.S. did to... Japanese descent people. So he shipped him off to Siberia. Yeah, he sent, most of us were sent to Siberia and Kazakhstan, the, the Volga Germans who were still there. There's mm. actually a famous singer. She's become more famous in Germany. Uh, her name's Helena Fischer, but she's a Volga German singer. And she was born in Russia in the Siberian city of Krasnoyarsk, which is near mm. Tunguska, where the Tunguska blast happened. So I, I need to get out to Krasnoyarsk. I'll go check out the Tunguska Valley. I'll get abducted by aliens, and I'll meet my long-lost relatives out there. And it'll just yeah. be a really cool trip. Uh, there, there's almost a half a million Volga Deutsch, Volga Germans, who still live there today. And it's actually, our people is one of the largest non-Slavic ethnic groups in Siberia. So in hmm. numbers-wise, alongside the native ethnicities, just because of how many of us Stalin deported there because he was afraid of us. So, so one more reason for me to go to Siberia. Yeah, totally. Now, some people, when I hear people talk about the gulag, some people kind of uh, mix that up with concentration camps and think that it's a German word, but it's a Russian word, right? So uh, here with our Russian language lesson for the day. Yeah, like a lot of Russian words, it's an acronym. Oh. As we've talked about before, uh, Russian words are just really freaking long all the time. So you just can't say the full name for, for something. Like we talked about with the, the name for World War II, uh, Gulag is an acronym too. The meaning of Gulag in English, it means main administration of camps and detention facilities. Hmm. And so the letters in Russian spell out Gulag, which in Russian is Glavne Upravlenie Lagirie i Miest Zaklutchenie. Now, this is an interesting thing about that word. These days in Russian, it's usually not used to refer to the gulags. Oh, okay. I don't know when it fell out of fashion. I don't know. Maybe some of it is is this human drive to look for a, a euphemism for something that's particularly horrific, like a labor camp. Yeah. So a lot of people refer colloquially to it more as the camps, like it, yeah, or just as the zone, zona. Hmm. So people use they use the word zona as the, a singular word to refer, to refer in general to the whole labor camp system and also individual camps. Yeah. Beyond language, uh, one significant difference between gulags and like the German concentration camps is the gulags, they were extremely harsh and brutal, but they were not extermination camps. Oh, so yeah. They, you, don't have, you don't have the ovens, the mass murder. I mean, there was mass death because of natural causes, starvation and the conditions out there. Yeah. But it was they were not extermination camps in the sense as the camps that the Nazis ran during World War II. Depictions that I've seen of those are more like work camps, it seems like. Or and there there was always I mean, people could well, they weren't gonna run away anywhere, so they were able to have maybe their own homes, but there was hard labor and a lot of lacking a lot of necessities for life, but not designed to kill them, at least not quickly. Right, right. Not de not deliberately. I think it might have been deliberate. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I want to hear some more about your your trip out there, Grant. Yeah. Now, when we think about about Siberia, we think about this remote place, this wild place. When we, when you and I lived in Angles, one of the the first people we met, he was this young journalist. We hung out with him at Jigulit Pizza, one of our favorite little spots. Oh yeah. And he was from he was from Siberia. So one of the first personal accounts I heard from Siberia was from him, and. He told us these insane stories from his hometown. I, I don't know where it was, but it was. He said it was a small village. Uh huh. He told us that it was this little village, real remote. And late at night, the sun would go down, and everyone would go inside their houses. And they knew you had to stay inside for about three hours or so, because he said first the bears would come into town, <laughs> out of the mountains, and these freaking bears would just take over the town, and they'd rummage through garbage, and and they just had the full reign of the streets. And they're walking the streets, just chill, you know, running, running the whole show. Riding bicycles and all that. Oh, yeah. Wearing little hats and riding bicycles and everything. <laughs> so the, the bears run the town for a couple hours and you had to wait until these packs of wild dogs would come out of the mountains and they would drive the bears off. <laughs> and then the wild dogs, <laughs> and they had the run of the town. They had the shift after the bears. <laughs> it was this pecking order and the wild dogs would run through the trash and eat from it. And eventually they'd get bored and leave, and then humans could go outside again. Uh. And that was just, he said, every night that was the natural order of things. <laughs> <laughs> just living in the, in the heart of, of nature. Yeah, it's wild, man. Yeah, there's, and so that was, that's in my head when I think of Siberia still, is just nature and wild and wild animals. Now, you mentioned the, the, the freshwater seal. I want to hear more about, in general, about your trip, about the stuff you saw. Yeah. Um I know there are there are tigers and leopards that are native to Siberia. Did did you ever see anything crazy like that? Any wild animals walking mm. around? No, I just saw those goofy looking seal and not even a real one, but but a stuffed one. I <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I think when when a lot of people think about Russia, they think about the bears and the wild animals and and yeah, the, you know, people talk about Siberian tigers white tigers and and snow leopards and stuff. I didn't I didn't see I didn't see anything like that. I saw plenty of dogs. There was a lot of wild dogs in the villages roaming around together. I mean, half wild. You know, they were they were yeah. ta- tame enough that they weren't attacking people, but they didn't you know, they didn't go home to someone's house and stay the night inside. They would go out and roam. Right. It it felt it felt wild though. I mean, I mean, there was it was a lot of dirt roads felt like I went back in time. <laughs> yeah, that that's exactly how I imagine it. Yeah. It's just a, a whole different different time period. And now you yeah. said you mentioned you were there in the summer and it was really hot. Yeah. I've seen some documentaries from Siberia and one thing that always shows up in the summer and I mean the summers when it's a lot easier to move around obviously, the snow is melted. Yeah. But because of that, I guess because of the huge volumes of snow that melt, they turn into these huge just swamps and apparently the mosquitoes are supposed to be crazy there. Huh. What did you have to have to battle with that? I remember uh at night when we had a campfire, I remember having to to put on my my hooded jacket and it was hot. It was it was hot out and we were at a campfire, but I remember putting it on because the bugs were just swarming and attacking us. I don't remember if they were mosquitoes or other bugs. I don't tend to get bit by mosquitoes, so so it could have been them. They just weren't bugging me as much as they bugged the other people. But one thing that I did did notice, and I think this had to do with the the weather, with getting a lot of precipitation in the winter with the snow, but then in the summer it being hot 
and long days. There was so much vegetation everywhere. You know, I talked about hiking through the forest with that one guy when we were digging potatoes. And I mean, the trees were just huge and everywhere. Like I said before, in the middle of nowhere, there was thousands and thousands of trees in every direction. You could barely see like 10 feet in front of you. That's kind of how, thick, that's how I remember thick vegetation, it. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. It, it felt almost, uh, almost like Jurassic, you know, like you, you look at like wow. Jurassic Park, the, the movie. And even though they were in on an island, a tropical island, it was just so much vegetation. This, this kind of felt similar, but, but different types of trees, more birch style trees, and pine trees. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you go that you go that far north, and uh, you get the extremes in climate, like really cold winters and extremely hot in the summer. Yeah, long days. I'm I'm assuming you were farther north than we were in Angles. Do you remember, like, what time would the sun set at night? Yeah, in the it, summer. It was pretty late. I th- you know I'm thinking I'm thinking like eleven ish. One of the things going back to the trees thing, I, I remember we were we needed to cut down some trees or we were building an obstacle course. I, I mentioned this in a previous episode in the, in our uh, great patriotic war episode where we built an obstacle course for the kids to do some kind of military training. And one of the things we yeah. had to do is we had to make a balance beam and the kids had to run across it. And so someone gave us a hatchet and told us to go up into the forest and cut down a tree. And we were like, well, are we allowed to cut down trees? Does it have to be a certain size? And they're like, look around us, just take a pick of any tree that you want. Like we're not lacking trees here, man. (laughs) Like, yeah, Yeah, I I guess you're right. You're thinking like a, like a Californian where where every tree is sacred and it was planted by the government and it's preserved because there's so few of them. Do I need a permit for this or? Yeah. Yeah. This is just abundance of of wildlife. Yeah. No. Yeah. But, but going back to your question, uh, there was a lot, it was very, the, the days were very long. Um, it was probably, it was after the solstice. So they, I think they were getting shorter, but you know, still in August there, the nights where we were, you know, we were probably getting three hours of dark and wow. Yeah. That that sounds more similar to when we went to Estonia, Yeah, which was yeah. a lot higher, higher altitude. I think we were, we were up, up there, up in that type of, uh, longitude or latitude or wherever. Yeah. Oh, did I say altitude? Again, we're not geologists here, people, so <laughs> this is, yeah. you can't expect us to to talk good and stuff. <laughs> were there huge vegetables? Like, I've seen videos from Alaska where, because of the long days, the vegetables just get crazy big. Or were they more normal-sized? I, From what I remember, they were normal-sized. When we went and got the potatoes, I just remember we both had, we, we had our shovels, and when we were walking back, we both had... T- two buckets on our shoulders. We, we put them over our shoulder. Uh, we put our, our shovels over our shoulders and hung buckets from the sides and they were just filled with potatoes. Uh, I don't remember them being huge, but we, we had to dig up a bunch of potatoes for the whole group. So we had a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super fertile anyway, really fertile land. I do remember the vegetables being very delicious. You know, I mean, we're out in the middle of, yeah, nowhere you know they didn't worry about pesticides and stuff the guy that had the potato field he just planted thousands of potato plants and then that was you know to last him for for the whole year and i think he probably 
would sell them and stuff too. That's something I remember in general from from Russia is fruit and vegetables having intense flavors packed into. Yeah. Because it's natural. There's not so much of a, a culture of pesticides and GMOs. Yeah. I really did enjoy a lot of the food that I had out there. When we were driving in the car to get to the camp, we, we probably drove for like 12 to 14 hours. It was in the middle of nowhere. We stopped at a little restaurant. It was right near the, uh, that, that mountain pass, the peak. Oh, yeah, the sacred, sacred mountain. Yeah, I think people would stop there to get something to sacrifice or something or, or an offering. They would buy something at a little store and bring it sometimes. But we stopped. There was a little restaurant, and we had um, the, the guy we were with, Doug, he called him, called him posies, but they were like large palmini. They were like the size of your fist. And they were like dumplings. Huh. They might have been, I, I, I just don't know if they were ethnically Russian or Siberian or if they, if they were kind of coming from Mongolia or something, but they were delicious. They were like just giant palmenis. They had meat and vegetables all mashed up together oh, in the man. middle. And that was really that good. That sounds like a dumpling. Uh, there's a dumpling. I think they have it in Mongolia and definitely in Nepal. Yeah. I've had it at Nepalese restaurants called a momo, which is basically like a big, like you're saying, like huh. size okay. of a small fist. It's, yeah, it's like a large pelmeni, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Those were great, uh, great vegetables at that same place. I've got to share this story. <laughs> like I said, we were driving for hours and hours, and we finally stopped at this basically like a rest stop with a restaurant. I had to go to the bathroom for hours in the car at this point. You know, sometimes when you travel and you get on airplanes, your your gut and your stomach kind of get all messed up. Well, I oh, hadn't yeah. I hadn't gone I hadn't gone number two. I hadn't taken a poo, you know, in the last three days and I really had to go. <laughs> so um so I was so glad to get there and I ran and um luck has it, it was it was the bathrooms, basically the outhouse bathrooms, you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, the the squatters for you. Yeah. Basically a hole in the grounds, <laughs> the, the, right. these, these wooden shacks out 30 yards away from the main building with a wooden floor and a hole basically cut in there. And I saw that and I was like, well, I guess I got to do this. They didn't even have doors. It kind of had, it kind of had the, <laughs> those little, like when you're at like the swimming pool and you're going into the bathroom there and there's like a little wall that's built out so people can't see in, but there's no actual door. Right. Yeah, you just you just trust that people aren't going to look at you. Yeah, and I I ran to get there, and I'm pretty sure that other people from my group are going. And it's also unisex; it's not like there's a men's or a women's, so anybody could just walk in on me. So I'm like, all right, I got to do this quick. So I I drop my pants, and with these squatting toilets, you basically that's exactly what you do. You just squat down, and you go. You know, right. you're not sitting on anything. There's no toilet seat. I learned uh, that. I liked to do what I call the tripod. Do you remember doing that movement where oh, you put one hand behind I, you? I taught you the tripod. Man. Okay. You, yeah, yeah. You probably I, learned it in Mexico and brought it. That, that revolutionized Madre, everything. When I was in the, yeah, yeah in, the, in the Sierra Madre, there were no outhouses even. You just had yeah. to go out into the mountain. Well, I decided I go, I go, okay, I've got this. I've done this before, but it had been like a year before I'd done it. And so I dropped my pants. I'm, I'm tripoding and I'm going down and I take the biggest dump of my life. <laughs> but it falls right into my boxers in my jeans. 
<laughs> because I, because because my my jeans my my pants and my my boxers are are right around my ankles you know because that's the only way you can tripod you can't you can't have them up and I'm, yeah I should have I should have told you when I developed that move it would I would always look for a slanted hillside and get the back of my body w- yeah. way way back behind my pants because you got to watch out for that yeah it it didn't work and so I uh, I'm like oh man all right here we go what am I gonna do like. I, I don't have just, my, well, it, it just all went into your pants. Yeah. It went just, right, went right into my boxers, like sitting in my pants. <laughs> so, so I, I, I just, I just took my pants off. I grabbed my boxers out of there. Luckily it stayed in the boxers and I, and oh, I just, I just God. threw them down the hole and I just went commando the rest of the, the car ride. Oh, easy fix. Yeah, I guess so. But but I felt so much better after that. At least I at least had space to go have a delicious posy in the restaurant. Um, that is awesome. You pooped your pants in Siberia. Yeah. Not even the acceptable kind of pooping your pants, where you, it, you know it's uncontrollable, and you're wearing your pants. You you took your pants off, and then you pooped into them. Pooped right into them. Yeah. yeah. That's commitment to yeah. pooping in your pants. Earlier earlier we talked about the Buryat people. Uh, we met we met some eth- ethnic Buryats. I don't know how to say them yeah, plural. Buryati. Um, yeah, Buryati. But they were. Uh, it, it was really. It was really cool meeting them. I think the ones that we met had converted and were Christians. But they talked about how uh, that how they it was. It, it felt kind of um, animistic. The the Buryat beliefs a little bit. The the Right. pagan shaman shamanistic beliefs but one of the things that they told us about that was a part of their history i think i think they said that they were connected to uh, mongolian heritage as well but they talked okay. about um they had these distilleries where they would do cow milk and blood cow blood together and they would distill it and make this what? um this alcohol out of it and uh, we well, went to a, wait, we, so they'd ferment They'd ferment it and make alcohol out of cow milk with blood. Yeah, yeah, that was like their oh, their drink. That's awesome. And I'm I'm really glad uh, nobody had any of that because I'd like to I'd like to try to to not say no to when people offer me things, but uh, I don't I don't think I could have handled that. That's... Yeah, you, you think you're pooping in your pants now? Wait till you try fermented <laughs> yeah. cow blood. Yeah, yeah, but we went to a museum and we saw their distilling process, and that was really cool and. Show, the museum had like a yurt that you could go into and kind of see they there it was like a nomadic tribe and i think the buryat people were nomadic and they would travel around and with their cows and with their horses go around siberia wow yeah man fascinating so i want to go back briefly to the the weather because you were there in the summer, but yeah, uh, you you must have heard stories about the winter, and it's it's supposed to be just brutal. Did did you hear in people talk about how rough the winter was out there? Yeah, people told me like we were driving down roads, and they'd say in the winter they would plow it or they'd keep it plowed somehow, and so the the snow on the sides of the roads were always like six feet high, and if people were walking, they would have snowshoes and walk up top, but if they're in the cars, they'd go in the little on the roads that had been kind of dug out. Um, I yeah. thought that was, that was nuts. There was a guy that we met and he, um, he, he told me he would periscate across 
Lake Baikal every winter or Paris ski. I think he had skates on, but it might've been skis, but he had a, like a, like a parachute or a para, parasail paraglider. Oh, okay. And so he would hold it. It was, I guess it was kind of like a kite. He'd had, he had strings and he'd hold on to that. And the wind, I think, would just kick up so hard, and he would ice skate or ski across the lake. Let the wind take him the whole way across the lake? Yeah, yeah, that was his, that was his thing. The lake would freeze over, and so you, you'd get like three to six feet of ice on this lake. And oftentimes, I've seen pictures of it where it's like totally clear, and you can like see down. It's pretty amazing. And, and I, and oh, man. So, you know, by the time that we got there and I jumped in the lake, it probably had just all finally thawed out. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, looking down and knowing there's all those sea monsters down there, just thinking about the freezing water and you can see it and you're you're just trusting that you it's probably thick enough. But, man, if that stuff cracks, <laughs> you are, you're going down yeah. a mile of water underneath you. I would yeah. be so terrified of that. Oh, man. Yeah, I think they they would they told me I think people would go out and they would fish on the lake and and I think they would have these hand drills where they would drill through the six feet to get all the way down. I'm sure there there must have been parts that were thinner, but it was a it was yeah. it was pretty intense and it's pretty flat out there. You know, I told you it, I I almost don't want to call that mountain peak a, a mountain. That's what they called it, but it really wasn't a mountain. It was kind of a hill, but there was a okay. lot of flat land where we were. And so I think the wind would just whip up and cut across and it would just get bitter cold. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. I mean, everything you've said about the extremes of the summer, the long days and the hot temperatures and the fertility, like I'm just imagining the opposite of that for the winter. Super short days, dark and just yeah. brutally cold. Yeah, probably probably two to three hours of sunlight. Yeah, it man, it was a brutal place, but a very, very beautiful place from my perspective. Before we wrap things up, I got to share one more story. Y you and I love going to the Banya. Yeah. One of my most favorite things about Russia. You know, we even found the Banya in uh, Hollywood that we would travel to when we were both living in California. Right, at Vodospa. Yeah. Oh yeah, Vodospa. What a great place. We got to, we got to, I got to tell you this story. <laughs> um, it's very similar to, to, to the story that you shared uh, in our first episode where you went into the Banya with, uh, it was just you and, and the Russian guy. And he says, I, now I'm going to beat myself. Right. Remember that? <laughs> right. Just a very, very awkward situation. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what he was going to do. Yeah. Awkward culture yeah. clash. Yeah. So, so for me, um, I'm there and I told you I was with a group of, uh, young, young people, young adults right out of high school, college age people. And there was, there was two younger guys that were, with me and I had been telling them about the Banya and I was, I was even before we went out there, I said, if we can find a Banya, we got to do it. It's one of the best experiences you'll ever have. And so we, we finished our camp and there was no Banya at the camp. It was out in the middle of nowhere. But after we did that, like I said, we went to Lake Baikal and we stayed at a place and there was a Banya there. Okay. And the people we were with, I said, Hey, can we, can we go do that? And they're like, Oh yeah, we'll heat it up for tonight. We'll, uh, we'll just, we'll, we'll just have the guys, only the guys will do it. And so when they said that, I thought, okay, that means it's going to be naked. I got to, I got to prep these guys, these young guys, I got to tell them. And so I'm like, all right, guys, I've told you all about the Banya. Just here's the one catch. We're going to go into it, but we got to be naked. 
And so we we were the first ones to unusual get unusual for Americans and you know, yeah, not used to being naked. So. A little bit awkward. We were we were the first ones there, and I'm like, all right, we got to just strip down. Let's let's strip down. Let's hop in because when the Russian guys come, they're they'll they'll be naked and they'll wonder why we don't have our <laughs> they'll wonder why we're wearing clothes in the banya because that's crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. So we do that and and we get in and they're like, okay, okay. I had to kind of talk them into it maybe, but um. So we get in and we're sitting there and we we're there for like 10 minutes, nice, hot and sweaty. And we're having a good time. Just the three of us Americans. And then the Russian guys came in and two of them come in, open the door and they, they're wearing swim trunks <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they, and they come in and sit and I'm, and I'm like, my mind is blown. I, I always thought like everybody always gets naked in the banya, especially if it's just the guys. And so finally I'm, I'm kind of like, um, and I'm 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 sit I'm sitting there like full spread, you know. I already I already. I <laughs> so already you just you just look like a big pervert now. I already pooped my pants earlier <laughs> in the week. I have no shame anymore. So I I'm you know I'm full spread and I'm I'm looking at these Russian guys and I'm like, um, Dennis, is is this okay? And I kind of point down to, to my to my area, and uh and he he thinks for a second he's like, yeah 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 it's okay. <laughs> and, uh, and uh did you, did you did you just point to your junk and say Mojna? <laughs> yeah pretty much pretty much <laughs> and uh and so yeah so so the guys the guys i was with were like what I, we could have worn our swim trunks but um but <laughs> so that that was that was my embarrassing awkward time in the banya but it was one of the best experiences because after we got all heated up and we beat ourselves and beat each other we were able to run and just dive right into Lake Baikal and the cold nice. water that, was amazing. Yeah, it was, it just felt so good. And, and the, and the sunset, it was a long sunset. So the sky was just all sorts of colors. It was one of the best, best experiences in the Banya that I've had, even if oh. I was a little embarrassed at showing off my junk to everyone. <laughs> oh, that's incredible that, you know, I, I actually, I did the same thing in Vienna when I was after you had left Russia and I was still living there and I went to visit my brother in Vienna. He was studying there abroad and the the dormitory that he lived in with the other Americans had a, a sauna also. And I was so used to the Russian style and I assumed, OK, this is Europe. It, it'll be the same thing. And so everybody from his group said, hey, let's go in the sauna and we're all going to head down and meet up in the sauna. So I went and I showered off first. And I same thing, but they were already in the sauna, and there were probably like twenty people, mm. all of them wearing their swimsuits though. And I just walk <laughs> in, butt ass naked, and yeah. I'm standing there before God and everybody, and uh, and they're all just staring at me like, dude, what are you doing, man? Put something <laughs> on. <laughs> well, I I will tell you and tell all of our listeners if you ever get a chance to go skinny dip in Lake Baikal, you got to do it. You just got to do it. <laughs> oh man. I, I really want to go there now, even more. I, yeah. I'm dying to go to Siberia. Well, let's let's do it. We got to get out there. Maybe we could do it together. Yeah, we'll do a Kickstarter. We'll get get people to pay for our trip somehow. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So so from listeners, if you guys uh, if you've been to Siberia also, or if you know someone from there, uh, we we want to hear your stories too. Yeah. Um, please keep keep interacting with us. We we love hearing from from our listeners. I love seeing your comments on social media. So, so tell us stories from Siberia, things you've experienced. We want to hear it. Yeah. 
Yeah, email us at trwlpodcast at gmail.com. And um, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we love we love the interaction. You guys are why we do this. So we'll see you next time. Today's episode of To Russia With Love is sponsored by the outhouse of Ulan Ude. Please enjoy our outhouse, but do not make there more in your tent. Спасибо за внимание. Please, thank you.